welcome to the first ever Blockchain Insider in its own stream. Thank you for all your feedback and downloads when we did this as a special in Fintech Insider. Uh, This, of course, is brought to you by the folks at 11FS. This show is designed for all of your blockchain and DLT needs. And of course, in blockchain and DLT, there's more happening than ever. Today, we'll talk about the ongoing token madness, some blockchain news, and then we have two first-class interviews for you. The first interview, the founders of Tezos, Arthur and Kathleen Brightman, the power couple of all things blockchain, have some exciting token sales happening, and they're going to tell us all about it. And then we have Stefan Thomas, the CTO of Ripple, the famous startup promising to revolutionize payments. But for now, on with the first story. Cool. All right. Colin is back with us. Colin Platt, how are you, sir? Doing very well. Thanks for having me back again, Simon. You're welcome. Just the two of us covering this week's news. There's some interesting stories we've got uh, happening in the blockchain and DLT space. The first one uh, is, of course, Tezos, who we'll be speaking to a little bit later on the show. But uh, they've uh, they've started a token sale. So what's a token sale and what's Tezos in, in your, your view? Yeah. So um, what's really interesting about um, Tezos and about this uh, this token sale, so in short, what a token sale is, is basically a way for people who are interested in a new idea to go out and fund it using a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And uh, what Tezos wants to do is actually create somewhat of a competitor to Ethereum. Um, they've so far uh, today, we're recording this on the 4th of July, uh, go America, uh, raised over $200 million, which is quite impressive in a combination of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, they want to create a new smart contracts platform that is, um, and we'll hear more about this later, self-amending. So basically, when we want to upgrade the ledger, we can use their own technology inside their blockchain to do this. So the, I think we'll go on to how it works when we speak to them. But the thing here is that they've raised nearly $200 million in how many days? In three days? Four days? Since Saturday. And we are currently, what, Tuesday? Wow. I mean, this that is a trend that is phenomenal. It, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. Even though the price of some cryptocurrencies has gone down, these ICOs keep happening. Absolutely. And I mean, token sales. Sorry for the purists. <laughs> there, there's definitely a lot of demand for these currencies, uh, whether they're going up or down, to put into new ideas, new projects. There's a lot of excitement. Um, just before the show, we looked at um, the Wikipedia page for crowdfunding. Eight out of the top 10 crowdfundings ever on the face of this planet are blockchain-related token related and that doesn't include tezos or the next thing we'll get into eos so that's pretty interesting because i thought i'd funded the best things on kickstarter ever and it turns out i hadn't it turns out everybody's funding these crypto coins right now um so you mentioned eos 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 like this is again did they all have to have these cryptic names tezos eos like what's with the naming of these things well we call it cryptocurrency for a reason don't we yeah it's gotta be cryptic (laughs) with your cryptocurrencies um again eos so these are more people that have come along and said uh, the type of blockchains and dlts that are out there now are wrong we've got a better idea and we're going to raise a lot money yeah absolutely so again uh, this is another one and this is really interesting as well um, because it's changed dramatically from what we've seen before this is another ethereum competitor Um, so very much on the same vein as as tezos it wants to come up and set up a new way for blockchains to run because they've looked at something uh, like ethereum they said i can improve on that i want to raise money and build this interestingly they used ethereum to bootstrap that and have raised 185 million dollars in the course of five days to do that can you think of a startup that raises this kind of money at this kind of pace? I mean, there's there's definitely going to be some winners and losers here, right? 
I, absolutely. I mean, there has to be some winners and has to be some losers. Uh, I think a lot of people have found a lot of excitement from the returns that early investors were getting, not only out of the 2010 uh, investments in Bitcoin or, or subsequently, um, but some of these things in the last year that have been getting 30,000 plus in six months uh, return. It's incredible. I, I failed to understand the economics if you're raising north of $100 million, how you're ever going to turn that into a trillion-dollar investment to get any kind of amazing return on these, but maybe. It's, it's interesting as well that the, the folks behind this, you've got Brock Pierce, I believe, uh, who is also blockchain capital, also was a star of the Mighty Ducks. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I think of whenever I hear his name. <laughs> Sorry, Brock, if you're listening. Um, but uh, this is somebody who's been around the blockchain space for a while, has seen some of the flaws. They're working with the folks from BitShares. I believe Ian Grigg is working there. So there's some, some very smart people behind this project have basically gone, hmm, the blockchains you've got out there aren't quite finished. We think this one should be better um and they've got some serious amount of money to give that a go exactly and i I, one of the one of the people as you said um dan larimer who's put together a lot of the technology on the eos uh, interesting character did bit share has been involved in a lot of other projects um he was behind steemit i believe he was behind steemit at some capacity um he has a a fantastic knack for creating very complex technology that is beautiful in its own right that says to me that we're in this phase of let many flowers bloom right surely uh what we're seeing here is evidence of more fragmentation in this space uh and actually Rather than converging around, you know, Netscape or Internet Explorer, we're actually getting people popping up with lots more browsers. But that's no bad thing because in time you end up with Chrome and Safari and and things move on. Yeah, I think this is really a a sign of the stage that we're at, which is still very immature. Um, I mean, we can look at this on one hand and say, well, wow, there's over $100 billion invested into blockchain cryptocurrencies, not even counting VC. That's a lot of money, but we're still very immature because we're not sure what this technology should look like. To me, what's very interesting is even the older ones that we hear about Bitcoin, if you follow this at all, there's a lot of discussions about small fundamental changes that if you're not overly involved in the technology, probably don't seem very important. But there's still a lot of little niggly things that need to be fixed in the more established ones. And these new ones are just coming out with ideas left, right, and center. So who are the people investing in this stuff? Is this just, is this mom and pop? Is this uh, by the geeks, for the geeks? I mean, what, what's what's happening here? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's hard to tell you with any level of accuracy. Um, I'd, I'd say 12 months ago, uh, it was pretty much for the geeks, by the geeks, and a few other people who were either VCs or uh, wealthy people who thought this was a good idea. Um, now we're definitely seeing a lot more uh, anecdotes about individuals coming into it. I, I don't know how many people have come up to me and said, I was at this event, nothing to do with blockchains, fintechs, anything. And, you know, the guy cleaning the tables or serving drinks said, hey, how do I invest in this Ethereum thing? Maybe that means it's a bubble and it's time to get out. Um, maybe that means that this is the start of something real. I don't know. Uh, but it is really interesting to see that more and more people have started to go, there might be something to this. It's, it's often a sign that when your taxi driver's got a great insight into this amazing thing that's going to increase your investment, it's it's time to worry. Um, <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah, um, but there might be a there there. Um, but then people often talk about the regulator's reaction to this. So we, we live, whenever you're dealing with large amounts of money, you're dealing with 
people who could lose out in, in a big way, and people possibly are losing out. But the regulators have done some interesting things in recent weeks. Um, we saw that in the US, the CFTC chief asked Congress for more money to oversee blockchain. Uh, this was um, Christian Carlo. Do we think that the regulators are coming for this token space and, and actually it's all going to get shut down? Or are people being pretty savvy here with, with which lawyers they're, they're working with and how they're, how they're managing stuff? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two big things here um, that are often confused because they're so closely intertwined. There is uh, the technology, blockchain, DLT, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then there's the cryptocurrencies, the tokens, everything that goes along with that. Obviously, the currencies rely on the technology, but not necessarily the other way around. Um, a lot of these new regulations, regulators getting in, especially um, Christopher Giancarlo, who's been looking at this for a while, to his credit, um, have looked at this and said, maybe, maybe not with the cryptocurrencies, but what we're really interested in is figuring out how the companies that we regulate, banks, uh, clearinghouses, things like that, might use blockchain technologies in their day-to-day operations to move things like futures on gold or stocks um, and any kind of registration around that. And they see the need to invest in that technology in a similar way that the Bank of England and the FCA over here in the UK have done. So that's pretty pretty interesting that they're seeing a need to regulate a type of technology. We wouldn't normally see them regulating cloud. We wouldn't see them regulating insert database technology here. You, you make a really interesting point that that conflation between currency and financial instrument and uh, technology is, is kind of creating a lot of uh, confusion. It is definitely creating a lot of confusion. And I think, again, this goes back to the immaturity of the technology and our understanding about it. A lot of people will argue that you can't have blockchain without a cryptocurrency. A lot of people will argue that you can absolutely uh, separate those things. I think as far as what the CFTC and some of the other regulators are looking at is not so much purely regulating the technology, um, but more if this future changes to look more like a blockchain or even a cryptocurrency type world, what does that mean for all of these typical controls that we have around the existing businesses? Because they may not exist in the future. Very interesting. And speaking of businesses existing in the future, there's a story from Coindesk that says the Delaware House has passed some historic blockchain regulation. What's this one about, Colin? Yeah, so uh, really interesting. Uh, Delaware has been very forward thinking um, in an odd way. A lot of people look at Delaware as kind of a tax haven, a bit like a a Jersey or Isle of Man, um, and look at blockchains as being kind of a bastion of transparency. So they don't necessarily see how these things fit together. Basically, what Delaware has done is they specifically put together their rule talking about different blockchain related things and how they will be allowed. Um, so basically giving a green light to say, if you have a company and you want to list your shares, you could do it on a blockchain. It's pretty interesting. So Delaware, of course, is the state in the US in which most companies are incorporated. So if you're going to build a company in the US, you're probably going to incorporate that out of Delaware. There are lots of um, good tax reasons why you might want to do that. But also there are lots of administrative reasons. It's just easier to do business there. So the fact that they're saying, okay, now your company is going to be registered on a blockchain if you want it to, what does that actually mean? I think what that means is uh, effectively this is a good legal regime because obviously a lot of these things are actually done in a boardroom in New York or in an office in LA where you can pay them a fee to list it on this thing and they will legally recognize it. But what does list it on this thing mean? Because typically my, I I would go to incorporate a company and I'd have a bunch of legal documents, right? And those legal documents would be signed by a bunch of people and kept in a drawer somewhere or or something else. And then eventually they work their way into somebody else's database. Like what's the difference here? Right. So, okay, let's take the example. We're in the UK. Companies house registers all of the companies in England and Wales. 
Fields. Um, they have a database to do this, and you can go onto their website, and you can actually look up uh, 11FS, and you can find the registration in there and a bunch of documents about it. Uh, that holds the authoritative record, and what they're saying is, we have this decentralized technology, and we're going to put a marker in this technology to say, all right, this is 11FS and their blockchain registry of proof of their existence, effectively. So the proof of their existence is useful, but I guess what would be really useful is if I can start making changes. So there's a company out of Singapore, Autonomous, um, and Symbiont have talked about doing this. T0 have talked about doing this a few times. number of companies talking about it's nice to register your company with, at that Delaware state level or at the company's house level in the UK or the Singapore equivalent. What's really nice is every time somebody invests in my company, can I also capture that digitally rather than having to go through term sheets and lots of different bits of paper so that I I can actually manage my entire company digitally and with lots of different people with lots of different paper because otherwise I just end up with a paperwork nightmare. Absolutely. And I think this opens the door to that without explicitly uh, having all those things worked out. Obviously, laws move very slowly. Um, Governments, administration moves quite slowly. Uh, And this is a good first step that's actually quite quick on it. Um, to start moving that direction. But it's still going to take a while for us to be able to trade like the New York Stock Exchange or the London Stock Exchange to put money in and out of a company. So this is an interesting one. I, I, when I remember talking to the Delaware guys in 2015 and I asked them, well, why don't you just make your database bigger um, to, to store all of this information? And their view was, well, it's actually not our place to store all of a company's books and records. Sometimes that should legally live with their accountants. Sometimes that should legally live with their bank. Sometimes it should live in lots of different places and the fact that it must live in different places means that centralizing it is hard so therefore having something where it can live in lots of different places and still sync up is really useful and i think this is one of the really interesting things when you get into the nitty-gritty of blockchain that uh, you're absolutely opening up a lot of these things that we would keep behind closed doors in the past and putting it out in the public domain to see inside of a blockchain to anybody that's looking and if you go all the way out to like a cryptocurrency type blockchain, like a Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum, you really are putting absolutely every line of your account, including, you know, who you're paying money to. Very interesting time. So watch Delaware, I think, is the takeaway here. Watch Delaware. Who knew? Um, if anybody remembers the Friends reference, it's the, the state that uh, Ross forgot. And it seems to be the one to look at now. The first state to ratify the, the Declaration of Independence. <sighs> had to make the july 4th reference didn't he uh we got some fun stories before we move up to our interviews um the first one up here is there is a pop friendly bitcoin startup that has raised 1.5 million dollars conlin what's happening here absolutely and again uh i think this one's really interesting for three reasons first is because my home state of washington state it's out of seattle um we have legal marijuana um the companies out there have a big issue because at the federal level um it's still illegal to buy and sell recreational marijuana which means it's very difficult for them to have bank accounts um a lot of people have put together the idea of well you can use bitcoin well that's that's not something that everybody really understands uh it lets them get out of the problem of holding a bunch of cash which obviously um the other thing that's still legal in the u.s is to have lots of guns um you can imagine lots of cash, lots of guns in the areas where marijuana may sell uh, is not always the best mix. So Bitcoin is interesting. Um, this company, Posibit, has put together an offering for several hundred uh, marijuana dispensaries across the state and across other states where it's legal to actually accept Bitcoin um, and not even have to manage anything else. And it's a bit like some of the other things where you could eventually convert it back into a US dollar. What's really interesting is we we talked earlier in this uh, show about raising these hundreds of millions of dollars. These guys raised a million and 
half dollars and have actual clients and actual business mm -hmm. from actual normal investors like uh, the Digital Currency Group, amongst others. So, I mean, on one hand, you have these fantastic sums for unbuilt products. And on the other hand, you have a working business uh, that has actual clients and they raise much more modest sums. That is interesting to me. It sounds out that having revenue and having a business makes you less investable in this case. It's, it's kind of odd, isn't it? It's, we live in bizarro world. We really do. It is. And I think it will be very interesting when some of these um, projects like uh, Tezos or anybody else actually start seeing their first real revenues to see what happens with evaluations. I mean, it could be anything. Well, because they've effectively floated, uh, but not officially. So the, the valuation is really hit by data in, in real time. Uh, this kind of stuff always strikes me, though, that like um, Bitcoin kind of had a great reputation with the bankers anyway. Um, now it's being used kind of in this, okay, legalized marijuana setting. Uh, do we need to get Bitcoin away from drugs? And, and is there an ironic factor here that like, actually, this is being used to reduce the likelihood of crime even when it was used on dark markets it's actually reducing the amount of crime that was happening in communities because people are buying them safely at a distance rather than from a dealer on the corner uh, and you, you're kind of so I, I think there's a perception thing here that's the optics like if i was running pr for bitcoin i would i would be wanting to just go go end it all right now because their pr the pr around bitcoin and cryptocurrency still isn't great it isn't um but i think it's really interesting here um washington state actually had a, a bill to potentially ban taking Bitcoin for marijuana payments, uh, not for anything else in the state, just for marijuana payments. Um, and it was very interesting that that was ultimately not taken in. And part of it was really around they wanted to make recreational marijuana something that was very above board and something you'd pay taxes on, like going out and buying a beer. Um, it was ultimately overturned because, uh, amongst other reasons, um, it wasn't really seen to be the issue any worse than cash. It's actually much more traceable than cash. Um, so That's I, a really good point. Right. So the people I, I talk to banks a lot on this. I've talked to central banks and so they, they, they really struggle day to day with the fact that their existing systems, they can't trace cash as it exists today. They can't trace money particularly effectively through the existing financial system. And yet with Bitcoin, I can see every transaction ever. And even if somebody's using like one of these mixer services, I can actually probably still figure out where the money ended up and where it got to because it's it's this perfect digital record. So then the the argument that it's it's kind of all anonymous and it's and it's not it, we're kind of seeing the opposite come through now. Bitcoin is absolutely not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. You don't have to attach your name in the same way with, you know, a 20-pound note. You don't attach your name. Uh, unlike the 20-pound note, it actually gets marked at every stage that it stops at, which is really interesting if you ever want to start running some of these KYC uh, analytics on top of it. And there actually are a couple of companies out there, Elliptic to name one of them, uh, looking at this type of stuff. Elliptic, Chainalysis, Scorchain, there's good companies out there. All right, so we are up against it on time, Colin. So we're just going to cover off one last story. Uh, there's one here where the protocol blockchain's impact on supply chains is broader than it seems. This is a story on Coindesk. Uh, well, first up, what's a supply chain? <laughs> right. Very good question. So um, effectively, when things get sold from point A to point B or get mixed in to build other products. So I receive wheat out of uh, Canada and I use it to make bread in London. Um, it's got a few different gaps in there because, of course, uh, you don't just grow wheat out of the ground. You need to put in fertilizer and all that great stuff. And there's lots of steps in there. Um, a lot of people probably recall when we had a horse meat scandal in, in Europe uh, relatively recently here. And uh, 
a lot of people found it. We didn't really know where our food came from or the ingredients that went into it. So a lot of people have said, okay, there's a couple of problems we have in supply chains. And interestingly, supply chains are much less regulated than uh, financial services, which is odd when we're talking about the stuff we put in our bodies. Yeah, it, it is a little bit odd. And then that concept you talked a minute ago about, I know where every Bitcoin has been since its inception, since its beginning. If I can trace it, no matter where it's been in the system, but I can't trace a piece of meat going around the world, maybe the same technology could help me with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can also facilitate, you know, potentially when something arrives, put in a check to say, well, this has arrived in a port in London, and this has gotten onto a truck, and it's now going up to Manchester. All this is quite interesting. You can make sure people get paid, you know, as they do their part in the supply chain. It's a little chain here. Um, and we just put that inside of a blockchain. Ironically. So what's interesting to me is this has been, the, there's a document called the Bill of Lading that's 2,000 years old, hasn't really changed. And it's effectively uh, a piece of paper with a list of uh, handwritten signatures on it. And that piece of paper is legal title of the goods inside a shipping container. And I could forge a piece of paper relatively easily, but it's much harder to forge a digital signature from a mobile device in a, in a particular location. And actually a, a series of digital signatures in theory gives me a, a lot more proof a lot more trust and i could have done all of that digital signature stuff without a blockchain but then the the additional opacity transparency of who signed it when and where and who has access to see who signed it when and where and who operates that because with supply chains it's a really interesting question of like if i was to do that as a centralized database who runs that centralized database for all of the goods for all of the countries for all of the regulations in all of the world who runs the centralized database for all supply chains ever it, it's kind of difficult Whereas when it's decentralized, the great thing about paper is I just stick it in an envelope and it flies around the world and somebody picks it up and it's as good as when it left. Um, that's not true for tr centralized technology. Exactly. And I mean, consider the things of what happens if it gets on a ship outside of London is due to go to New York and it sinks along the way. I mean, it would be great to have a record to know exactly what was on that boat when it sunk in the middle of the Atlantic so that the insurance company could just write a check to whoever it needs to go to. And to see that in near real time, right? So right now you're seeing that piece of paper three days later when FedEx brings it to you or UPS brings it to you and you're sending. Uh, I saw a stat that the cost of paper alone in global um, supply chains is $500 million a year just in the postage stamps. Like it, it's insane how much money people spend on just moving paper around the world to also move the goods around the world. Alrighty, so that seems like a, a strong old use case if you're in financial services. And of course, we saw Digital Trade Chain, uh, an interesting project from the banks, which we don't have time to cover this week, but we will cover in future weeks, I'm sure. Uh, Alrighty, Colin, thank you very much for being on the show with us again thank this week. Thank you. Um, next up, we are speaking to Arthur and Kathleen Brightman from Tezos. So I'm here with Kathleen and Arthur Brightman. Uh, Kathleen and Arthur, thank you very much for being on the show. How are you? Very well, and yourself? Very good. Thanks for having us. Oh, I'm much obliged to have you. Um, we've known each other for some time, but it's great to have you both on the show because uh, you guys have done something pretty interesting recently. You guys have done a bit of a token sale. But before we get into that, can you just tell us a little bit about your uh, background, uh, how you guys how you guys met, what you guys did before Tezos, etc.? I suppose um, it's easier to put this chronologically. So we met in 2010. We started dating. And then we got married in 2013. I was still in college when we met. Um, I graduated in 2012, and then I went to work. I worked at a VC, and I, I helped some distressed uh, portfolio companies try to turn around. Um, then I, I spent a bit of time at uh, Bridgewater Associates, which is a large macro hedge fund. And then I went to consulting. I worked at Accenture for some time. 
And then eventually I, I sort of became a subject matter expert internally on blockchain technology, which led me to take a job at R3. Towards the middle of my tenure at R3, Tezos became really popular again in sort of taking the mind space of people. So I left um, R3 to take on operations at Tezos full time in September of 2016. So, Yeah, on my side, my background is uh, in statistics and uh, quantitative finance. Uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley as a um, as a market maker. Uh, so essentially, writing um, algorithms to look at uh, price signals and, and and trying to decide, you know, what, what is the right price, you know, right price to buy or sell a stock or an option. And uh, I, I got interested in Bitcoin uh, fairly early on. Um, you know, I, I I joke, but it's true. It's it's just, the sad truth is I heard about Bitcoin very early on before the network actually launched, like in two thousand eight. One of my best friends, Perry Mesger, runs the uh, cryptography mailing list. We had, you know, uh, an anarchist like Cypherpunk meetup, and uh, he told me about it, and then I didn't look into it for years. So that, that was a mistake. Uh, but eventually, you know, I, uh, I came to look at Bitcoin, and I was extremely interested and I was fascinated by the ID. The, 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 the one thing that uh, struck me as interesting was someone made the point to me that, look, you know, Bitcoin is the first distributed ledger of its kind, you know. Uh, but what matters is uh, what matters is the entries in the ledger, right? So the Bitcoin algorithm doesn't have to be perfect. We can make it better over time, as long as we preserve the ledger itself. It doesn't actually matter, you know. It doesn't actually matter, and and that, and that really resonated with me because my worry at the time was, hey, this is fantastic, but this is the beginning of something. How is Bitcoin going to stay? Current with all uh, with all the technological innovation that's sure to happen in this space, uh, and and so that answer stayed with me for a while, and I, and I started being a little disappointed when I saw that there were really cool innovations, like uh, private transactions that uh, you know now Zcash has implemented that didn't seem to be of interest to Bitcoin or smart contracts. Bitcoin didn't seem to have a strong urge to adopt this new innovation. And in fact, I saw, I saw a sour grip tendency where people were saying, hey, actually smart contracts are a bad idea, or actually we don't want private transactions because they have such and such feature. So uh, it, it, got, it, you know, it really got me thinking that even though Bitcoin was an um, anti-political project in some sense, you know, it's meant everything is meant to be ruled by one algorithm, it's mathematical, there's no subjectivity in it. I don't think you can actually rule out the politics of a system. You know, I, I think politics is like hurricanes. You know, I, I don't necessarily like them, but they exist and you have to make, you know, and you have to manage it. And so the idea of Tezos is that it actually takes a political element into account. It says, look, we're going to have, we're very early in this space. There's going to be a lot of innovations. It would be great to have a protocol that doesn't change, but if we do that, we're going to stagnate. So we need a way to actually update our protocol to, to stay current. But we don't want to just have one person that says, okay, this is a new version of the protocol. We need, uh, so the idea is to have a formal governance model to like build in the blockchain, use the consensus making ability of a blockchain to make consensus over how it should evolve. So it puts the stakeholder of the, of the blockchain in charge of deciding how they want the blockchain to run, what type of consensus algorithms they want to run, what type of, uh, what type of, trade-off do they want between centralization and throughput? All these type of decisions can be put in the hands 
are the people who actually use Ledger. I think that's hugely exciting. You basically looked at Bitcoin and said, it's really exciting that somebody came along and invented something that was decentralized, that allowed you to have consistency across lots of counterparties, that allowed you to do amazing things. But actually, changing that was so impossible that you needed to think through, how do I have a thing that's consistent? And also, how do I make changes to that thing whilst keep it consistent as it moves? It's a really delicate challenge that uh, that we're now seeing i think in the bitcoin space where they're struggling to um process transactions they're getting slower and slower and uh, when the retail world you know who get excited by the bitcoin price come to this space and look at bitcoin they're going oh well my bitcoin transaction didn't clear for a day sometimes sometimes two days and same is happening in ethereum so it's a bit of a response to that almost to, and, and maybe you foresaw some of those challenges so so what is what did that lead you to what what insights did that lead you to and then and then what is what is tezos and how does that try and help address those so, so, so most of you know people were discussing Bitcoin scalability at the time, you know, in 2014 when the Tezos papers came out, came around. Of course, people were already discussing Bitcoin uh, scalability, but they were discussing it purely as an engineering problem. It was okay, you know, how do we address that? It was not discussed as a governance crisis. You know, the governance crisis came after. So, in in that respect, I think that the the paper foresaw the governance problems. Um, and, this, and you know, the thing is, from an engineering standpoint. There are solutions to the scalability problem of Bitcoin. And in, in fact, Bitcoin is considering two, it's just the quantity side. Uh, one has uh, more transactions on the blockchain, but can lead to more centralization. Uh, and, and so, you know, decentralization is an important aspect of Bitcoin, so that can be problematic. The other one has more off-chain transactions, uh, doesn't necessarily lead to more centralization, but it changes the nature a little bit uh, of the transaction on Bitcoin. And people just can't agree on, on which one they want to, uh, to go with. And it creates this huge political deadlock. Uh, there's also other solutions which are a little bit more out of left field. There's something called Bitcoin NG, which has great scalability, uh, doesn't introduce more centralization. It's a fantastic solution, and it's barely being considered because it's just so different than Bitcoin that I think that the idea of saying, hey, we're going to have a, a radical change is just out of the uh, agenda for anyone uh, in, involved in Bitcoin at this point. And, and that's too bad. I think that. It's, it ought to be radical. There's a, there's a tendency to treat it as already having arrived. You know, you know Bitcoin has made it, and all it needs to do now uh, is survive, is it, not commit a, a single mistake. Yeah, it doesn't need to change. It's ready. It's finished. So long as it survives, it's done. But then you could say the same for uh, Netscape. You could have probably said the same for MySpace. They they worked, um, but were they ready for the big time? And were they um, not vulnerable to? Uh, you know, there's something about network effects that people say a lot, where it's it's because it's the biggest, uh, it will be around forever. But actually, being the biggest doesn't guarantee you success. I mean, Yahoo and Lycos again are, are other examples. So who is Tezos for, and what does it mean? If I am either a developer with an idea, or what does it mean if I'm in a bank, or what does it mean? What does it mean to to have this platform, um, and who should use it? Well, um, I, I think in in, um, in terms of its usage, it's in the same um, you know it's, it's it's in the same category as Bitcoin and Ethereum, and there's been a tendency to say that Bitcoin and Ethereum are complementary, saying like, oh well, you know, Bitcoin is a store of value; it's been for transacting. Ethereum is meant, you know, it's, it's meant to power gas uh, smart contract. You know, people were uh, have been saying, oh, Bitcoin is gold, Ethereum is gas. I think that it may be the intention of the Ethereum developers to do that. But de facto, I think the overlap is much greater than, uh, than, than, than people imagine. 
there's, there's nothing that, about the Bitcoin use cases that are prevented on Ethereum, right? There's nothing that actually prevents you from storing values in Ether. So in that respect, uh, we're, you know, we're blockchain in the same vein as, as these other blockchain. We're a base platform. We have uh, smart contract applications uh, and tokens. You know, the idea behind it is anyone who wants to use it is supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be accessible. Now, of course, these are the early days of the technology. So early adopters are going to be the first people to use it, but we want to make an, an, an effort to, uh, to bring in uh, more people. Uh, I think, the, the main scalability uh, challenge is, is not just scalability of the technology itself, but social scalability. You know, how do you grow it to a, a much larger community? You know, it's interesting that people still talk about, you know, they talk about the Bitcoin community, the Ethereum community, but no one talks about the Facebook community. You know, no one talks about the Amazon community because at some point, you're, you know, you're, you're, your audience becomes so large that you're not about being a community. You just, you, you know, you're about being a product with a lot of users. And I think that's hugely significant. That's where the focus is. You really don't want to focus on the infrastructure. If you're a developer, you want to focus on yeah, being being a product. So I think that's that's a huge point. Um, so you guys have now built something that has attempted to address, I think, some of those concerns of the earlier platforms. It can do all the things they could, but it's it's got additional capability over the top and the governance is changeable over time. Would you say um, that uh, your approach then from a, a token sale perspective was one to um, try and get uh, that governance off the ground? Or, or what was the goal of the token sale? Because I know your token sale has gone quite well. Maybe you could tell us a little bit how that's gone and, and, and why you did it and, uh, and also uh, how you view more traditional forms of funding as well um, in that ecosystem. So, uh, so, so the, the fundraiser that took place over the past few days, and that's going to go on for, uh, for a few days. Uh, so this is actually being, uh, being led by a, um, a Swiss foundation. So, uh, we, uh, we helped set up a, uh, a foundation in Zug called the Swiss Foundation, and it's headed by Johann Gevers, uh, Diego Pons, uh, and Guido. This foundation essentially is uh, dedicated to promoting the protocol. You know, the idea that we, so we have a private company in the US who has been developing uh, this ledger. But if you want to launch a ledger like this and you want it to be used by many, many people, it doesn't necessarily make sense to do it as a private company because a lot, a lot of what, you, what you're doing is essentially benefiting anyone who uses the product. So you don't really have a commercial relationship between you know, the producers and the, and the customers when you're developing an open source project. So it made more sense to have uh, a nonprofit foundation do it. So the nonprofit foundation has been uh, connecting this fundraiser and it serves several purposes. One is that, you know, it's going to end the, um, the foundation with a budget that can help it promote the use of the, of the protocol and development and uh, interest in the space. Uh, and the other one is that it provides a way of, the, of distributing tokens, you know, the way that, Bitcoin was uh, initially put in people's hands is that people would mine it. You know, so they would add their computers to the network and uh, they would spend some electricity and then they would receive in return uh, some uh, some Bitcoins. There's no mining in Tezos. Uh, Tezos uses a proof-of-stake system where the people who validate the network and contribute to the network in terms of creating blocks and checking transactions are people who hold tokens. So as a result, uh, you need an initial distribution mechanism, and you need you need one that's going to go far and wide uh, in uh, in distributing the token. And this was an opportunity to do that. 
That's hugely significant that people can take it from the beginning and that you're using different um, consensus um, mechanisms. So your incentives are different, uh, your economics are different, and your governance is different. And I think people should definitely pay uh, closer attention to that. So um, I'm running up against it on time. So so uh, I'm going to ask you to, two, two questions to leave uh, listeners with, which is one, what are your uh, ambitions for Tezos? Uh, you know, wh- what do you see in its future? What, what What's coming down the line at us um, as as the token sale rounds out in the next week or two and of course where can people find out more um well finding out more is quite easy so tezos is a made-up word um so we're, we're as far as we know the only tezos you know thing that pops up on the internet um aside from scams uh for tezos uh so tezos.com uh is the main address where you go but uh in terms of like where we want this to go obviously we have um a bit of a lull between the fundraiser and the launch of the network. Um, so we're going to be working on announcing some some partnerships and some people who want to use uh, the protocol moving forward. I like the idea of having um, a way to distribute business logic in this decentralized fashion. I think it's a really powerful idea. And a number of people have approached us to, to start using the technology um, more critically. So I'm excited to get that off the ground. Um, that's That's more or less what we're going to be focusing on over the next year is building out the network, releasing it, um, and also launching some use cases that hopefully will will validate our uh, hypothesis that this is a really awesome piece of technology. Here, here. Um, the amount of people I speak to that tell me that they really like Ethereum, but they wish they had something that was ready um, on a weekly basis is is increasing all the time. So that people should definitely go pay attention to Tezos as a project. Um, Arthur, Kathleen, thank you very much for being with us on Blockchain Insider. Great. So I'm here at Money 2020 with the CTO of Ripple. Stefan, thanks for being with us on Fintech Insider. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Likewise. Great to have you on the show. Ripple, you guys have been around for a little while now. You're you're kind of uh, old hat at these conference things now, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, I joined in 2012, pretty much when the company started, September. That's that's a a good while. And, And in that time, you guys have kind of gone through some changes there's been caterpillar versions there's been butterfly back to caterpillar back to butterfly like how would you describe what ripple is today Mm. so i think today we're a software company that's making solutions for banks to make cross-border payments easier faster cheaper so when you say cross-border payments cheaper faster better like who's that for then so you're a solution for banks and they're finding cross-border payments too expensive. Is that all banks? Is that the tier one banks? Is that smaller banks? Like, who, who's who's the ideal customer? So I think it's the banks that are finding it harder and harder to serve their customers. So this could be corporates that are trying to do disbursements around the world, trying to pay out to vendors, etc. And uh, they're trying to provide a better product because their customers are slowly moving away to alternative solutions. Um, and so for the banks to keep their customers around, they need a better infrastructure so they can actually give the same kind of user experience that you would get from some of their competitors. So when you talk about better infrastructure, though, you're not talking about changing what's inside the banks. You're talking about the connections between them, right? Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the way that banks connect to each other, especially. So how do they do that with Ripple versus how they used to do it? Mm-hmm. So today, they'll usually have messaging systems that are kind of one way. So they'll shoot a message off um, and then not get any feedback, not get any uh, reply right away. Um, and with Ripple, what we can do is we can actually see the entire cost across a payment path. So if it goes through a bank to another bank, maybe even to another bank, um, we can see the cost across that path. And also like the FX rates, um, you know, if it's going to take a long time, how long it's going to take basically all the properties of the payment we can see up front. So it's the metaphor here that like I send an email to bank number two and bank number two then forwards that email to bank number three but doesn't include me. 
who forwards that email to bank number four but doesn't include me. And I have no idea what's happening to my payment. Whereas with Ripple, I'm CC'd in the whole thing. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's actually, um, you know, a lot of payments actually fail because of this. So something like 10%, depending on, on who you're talking to, um, of wires, international wires fail because some part of the destination information is wrong, like the account number maybe or uh, the address or the bank name or whatever the case may be. And, uh, you know, we're addressing that by being able to verify that information right away. So it's just another example of, of that end-to-end communication being really key to providing a good user experience. So I understand it that Ripple then comes along and says, okay, well, you've got your big system sitting inside a bank, does all of your payments, all your customers are using that millions of times a day to send money both domestically and internationally. And this system, we're going to connect it to a whole bunch of things, and now you're going to connect it to Ripple. And because you've connected it to Ripple, it can make payments faster, cheaper. But if that system itself is slow, is there anything you guys can do to make that system go faster or are you still reliant on the, the banks being faster? What, what, is there a benefit still to using Ripple even if the system itself is slow? Mm. Yeah, so I think the visibility is still there. So actually before we move any money, we can still do that end-to-end communication so we see what the costs are going to be, what the speed is going to be, um, even if the systems themselves are not real-time. Uh, in fact, I would say from what we hear from our customers, real-time isn't the biggest issue. I think the biggest issue is the failure rates. It's the uh, the, the customer service issues that that causes. Um, it's the number of APIs that you have to integrate with if you want to do global payments. So those are some of the issues that we hear from our customers. Um, and real-time, I think a lot of banks are uh, upgrading their internal systems, and then they, do, they find out that there's no place to integrate that cross-border, right? So like... Um, you'll see more and more countries like the UK having uh, very good domestic real-time systems, um, but then having trouble connecting with other countries in real-time. So uh, that's kind of where we see a lot of benefit and, and a lot of potential. So that's interesting to me. People often talk about faster, cheaper, but actually just more transparent, less failure is, is a message to, to a banking audience that I think makes a lot more sense, which is I don't want these payments to fail and I need to know where that money's got to. Otherwise, I'm on the hook with the regulators. So for, to have somebody to give me the transparency to that could be huge. But how do you balance sort of transparency and privacy? How do you, how do you keep that balance? If you've got like this shared ledger, if, if everybody's using this network and everybody can see everybody's transactions, how do you guys think about privacy in, in that setting? So that's a really good point. So the, the technology that we use today um, is a protocol called Interledger Protocol. And in that protocol, the only parties that are actually privy to the details of the transactions are the banks, the financial institutions that are involved in that transaction. So it's very different than uh, both our old, own solution, our old solution, um, as well as solutions that a lot of other vendors are out there with, um, where you do have a shared ledger that everyone can, can sort of see. Um, so with Ripple, it's not even the consortium that can see it, but it's actually just the particular uh, participants of that transaction plus any regulators. That so explain the interplay between Ripple and Interledger, because I think there's, there's a lot of people hearing Interledger, there's a lot of people hearing Ripple, and they're kind of struggling to separate the two. So, so what is the difference? Because one's like a traditional shared ledger with gateways around the edge of it, and the other one's uh, this network for doing transactions as you just described. Is, is that fair? Is or um, so I would say that the shared ledger, um, we're using it primarily for one thing, which is the, the built-in currency XRP, um, which is like yet a third thing. Um, so I can see how, how people might think it's confusing. But the way I usually explain it is that um, I see it as stages, right? So I think the most immediate benefit that we can give to people is um, that transparency we were just talking about, right? So that's something that our product is already in production with. Um, already there are banks that are benefiting from this, uh, doing payments today. And so... That is something that that's kind of the most near-term opportunity. So I, I think there's 
statements that appear to be contradictory that might not be, so I want to unpick them. Because there was something you said where with Interledger, which is kind of my my gateway into Ripple and gateway into other things, uh, only the banks involved in that transaction can see that transaction. And on the other hand, you're saying when using Ripple, the benefit of using Ripple is the transparency. But if, I, if my gateway in is something that only I and my counterparties can see, how, would, how are you balancing that with the transparency? Is it just the counterparties to the transactions themselves that can see the entire flow and nobody else in, in the network? Is, is that kind of the key here? Exactly Maybe transparency is a misleading word. Yeah, I think transparency, it always like, depends on transparency of what and for whom. Uh, and so I, I think for us, it's the, the transparency to the user in terms of what is the path, what does the liquidity look like? Um, and that is something that comes up. It's like not every player is comfortable with sharing their rates and, and being transparent about their pricing. Um, but I think that that's just a requirement. That's just something that customers are going to expect in the future. And so um, the players that are willing to share their rates, those are the ones that we let participate in our network. Um, and we think that those are the ones that are going to be the most successful. I, and I suspect regulators would enjoy that as well from a, from a treating customers fairly perspective. So build up the story for me then. We've got Interledger, we've got Ripple, and then the third step, we've got XRP. Let's solve one problem at a time. So solving the first problem, why, why I need Interledger, I want the transparency. How do I get Interledger and, and, and how do I integrate it and, and what do I do with it once I've got it? What, what does it give me? So Interledger is basically an interoperability protocol for payments. Um, the idea behind it is that uh, we want to apply the ideas from the internet to payments. So taking the same sort of architecture, the history of it, um, and thinking about whether those lessons can be applied to money. Um, and I think there's a lot of people talking about internet of blockchain, internet of value, internet of money, internet of payments. Um, but I think that a lot of those approaches don't actually really look at the, the architecture of the internet and try to apply the principles of it. They're just trying to, to get the outcome of it. So would it be fair to say that uh, the banking system and payment systems are sort of almost existing in a pre-internet age? It, it's like before the internet came along, we could all build networks. Universities had networks. Companies had networks. But getting those networks to talk to each other was always proprietary and kind of hard. And that's exactly where the banking system is today. I want to solve that problem, and I need a way for those systems to talk to each other. But I can't just use the internet protocols. I need a different type of protocol. And that's where I might want to use something like Interledger. Yeah, so I think the best example that I always can give is, is um, if, if you look at Visa and you look at their slogan, it's, do you know what it is? Everywhere you want to be. And if you look at MasterCard, it's basically the same thing where it's uh, for everything else there's MasterCard, yeah. right? And so both cases, they're basically advertising how large the network is. How many merchants can you go to? Where can you spend with, this, with these cards? And so it's the primary value proposition is reach. It's not how cheap are we or you know, how fast are we or anything like that. It's, it's we can reach so many merchants. If you go back far enough in time, you see ads from CompuServe and like online service providers where they also talk about we have the most members, we have the most services. And it makes sense that before you tie all the networks together, the biggest value proposition is always like how many people can you reach. But what happens is you get a couple of these um, sort of incumbents that are very large and they have that global reach, but then all the smaller providers band together and they kind of interoperate using some protocol. And that's when you suddenly see them like, starting to threaten the incumbents, right? And I think that hasn't happened in payments yet because it hasn't been the right technology. And with Interledger, we're trying to create a protocol that can do just that. And of course, Interledger is a protocol, it's open source. So for you guys, that's just step one. 
So what problem do I have once I've got Interledger, once my, uh, once my payments are interoperable? What, what do I then need to solve? Is, it, is this where we get into the transparency thing? Is this where we get So into- the reason Ripple is investing so much time, we have uh, 11 full-time people working just on Interledger. The reason we're investing so much time is because we think it's going to be a big driver for, for our products in the market because this is going to put additional pressure on the system uh, to modernize and to kind of keep up with the technological change. Because if people are starting to do these kind of payments that we envision for Interledger, where I can pay from any wallet to any wallet, I can pay sort of seamlessly into in, into, in the flow, um, and I, I'm no longer restricted by some of these expensive, slow um, networks that I have to go through today, once we reach that stage, banks are going to have to keep up with that. And so we are making solutions for banks that allows them to do that. So it's creating basically demand for our products. Yeah, so in, in one sense, you've solved the first problem, which is payments aren't interoperable. Once they do become interoperable, now I need faster, better systems. Exactly. So now you're solving problem number two, and you go, well, we've been working on a faster, better system in theory, so here it is. And then number three is, when you want to do international FX, you might need... This has always confused me. I'm not sure why XRP is needed in the system. What What is XRP? Mm-hmm. So the way that you do real-time international payments today is by pre-funding funds around the world. Um, yeah, so so think- I'm a bank uh, who's in one country and you're a bank in another country and I decide I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money and you're going to give me a whole bunch of money in different currencies. Is, is that what you mean by pre-funding? Exactly, but it's not just banks that do that. It's corporates that do that. It's uh, payment companies that do that. And there's actually a lot of money that's tied up just for that purpose. I, some estimates I've seen are $26 trillion around the world. This is, a, I think, a McKinsey number. So um, that's a significant amount of money for just to be sitting there as collateral for, for payments or as, as, you know, reserves for payments. And so... Where we see a big opportunity is if you had an asset that you could move globally in real time and you could do it, it, it was reliably enough, reliable enough and, and stable enough to use as a settlement asset, um, it basically would become kind of like a, a form of gold, a form of reserve that you can almost like teleport around the world. Um, and that would solve that problem. It would stop you from having to pre-fund everywhere because you can actually move your collateral around the world wherever you need it in real time. And so that allows you to free up those funds and use them for something else. Okay, but I'm assuming, though, that somebody else could do that with another asset. It doesn't have to be XRP. XRP is just one that you guys chose and picked. Right, so that's a really good point. So we want to look at what are the, the properties of an asset that you'd want if you want it to be used in that role. So you could use dollars, you could use, um, you could use any kind of digital asset like bitcoins, ripples. Um, the question is, what are the properties that you're going to be looking for? And so when I look at fiat currencies, well, fiat currencies, until central banks actually offer the service, um, you're always going to be tied to some particular counterparty, some particular issuer for that particular um, ledger that you're using for the settlement. And uh, I think the problem that banks have run into is, yeah, I mean, you can use Citigroup, you can use Barclays, but as soon as they have some, some amount of reach, they will charge you through the nose for that service because they have that reach and other people don't. So it's, again, that same problem of um, once you have reach, you get that lack of competition because people are just um, entrenched. And so I think there's an opportunity for these neutral assets to be used for settlement where, you know, Ripple can't charge any high fee for that because we don't control the network any more than any of our users do. Um, and so the fees will always be low on Ripple. Uh, and so it, bec- it becomes a, 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 not a moat, it becomes a, um, you know, a freely usable system. It's designed to create freedom in the system. But isn't it true, though, that like the overwhelming majority of Ripple nodes are run by Ripple? Um, 
So right now we are um, working with a bunch of partners around the world, including MIT, Microsoft, um, you know, Telindus, uh, at Tokyo. These are all enterprise hosting companies. Uh, and basically what they're doing is they're running Ripple validators. Now, the way Ripple works is that it's the users that are choosing which validators they want to listen to. So they can choose us, they can choose these other partners, etc. Right now what we recommend to our partners is that they use our validators. Um, and the reason for that is because we are the only ones with um, several years of operational experience and five lines of uptime. And, and other benefits that, that you might want if you're using the system commercially. Um, however, in the future, some of these other providers will build up that experience and they'll build up that track record. Um, and at that point, our customers will start trusting them and also we'll start recommending that they trust them. Um, so that's when the network becomes like a uh, something that we truly don't control. Interesting. And so what do you see uh, the future? Where do you see the market at at the moment? Because... I, I see there's still a lot of confusion out there. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people charging in a hundred different directions. There's Corda, there's Hyperledger, there's people in the use cases like trade finance and financial markets. There's all kinds of stuff happening on the payment side as well. Where are we at in the evolution? We've seen the crypto asset bubble recently. Where are we at and what are people missing? Well, I think that the more and more people are understanding that the, the key challenge is interoperability. I think you know, we were pretty early with, with Interledger. Um, there's lots of other uh, approaches out there now with uh, uh, Cosmos and others. And basically, what I would say is that, that at some point in the near future, there's going to be you know, some winner on the, on the side of um, uh, interoperability. And no matter which one that is, you know, we're going to definitely support that in our products. And so uh, one of the things I would say is that, that Ripple products are, are uh, designed so that they can support any kind of interoperability protocol. And so for our customers, they, they don't have to worry about which one of these many, many technologies is going to win out because if they use Ripple's stack, they're going to be interoperable with it either way. So they've, they've kind of got that, uh, that optionality in future. I guess, though... Um how do you guys see the transition coming from where you're recommending the majority of your customers use your service and validators? You guys have a large percentage of the XRP supply. You guys are controlling how XRP supply is being released. Can you see why people might be nervous given your current position? And how do you reassure people that that will in fact change? Right. So I think like a lot of the things that you've mentioned are also our biggest strengths. Like For instance, when I was working on Bitcoin, I wasn't getting paid. And that's, I think, a recurring theme that you see with uh, some of these other digital assets is that there isn't a, a strong core team that's fully dedicated to supporting the, the asset. Um, so, for instance, in Ethereum, people often complain that there is nobody really working on, on the core anymore. Uh, and it's, it's getting difficult to you know, meet the, the roadmap and meet the deadlines to, to actually get the important improvements out. Um, and so, you know, for me, you know, as a holder of XRP, I certainly like the idea that there's somebody that can step in if there's kind of a regulatory challenge or if there's uh, any kind of uh, initiative that needs to be created to support the asset. So I will say that. The other thing I want to mention is um, that Ripple actually decided to lock up or commit to locking up uh, a significant amount of the XRP that we hold. Um, so uh, I think it's uh, $54 billion, uh, that we're locking up to be released $1 billion a month in sort of a rolling fashion. That doesn't mean that we have to necessarily spend a billion a month. It's just that's kind of putting a cap on how much we can uh, release into the market at, at once. Yeah, I, I think there's this, uh, a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. You, you're kind of torn between the effectiveness of being the evil empire and the, the loveliness of being the, the rebel alliance. And actually, you've always got to try and find that 
find that balance. And I guess also there's there's a lot of incumbent institutions that would look at what you guys do and say, actually, more transparency in my, in the market is probably going to be difficult when I have a large share and lots of flow. Uh, actually, having a system that hasn't been used at scale yet is, is difficult. I want to see other people using it. And you guys have got a few customer references now. What do you see the, the future looking like? What are the major next steps? Because a number of banks have started using Ripple kind of internally you know, in, in production. What, what happens after that? Yeah, so right now we're very focused on uh, setting up some of these key corridors like India. We have a lot of traction in Japan. Um, so some of these most interesting remittance corridors, those are where we're focused on right now. Um, we think that it's obviously going to take some time to build a global network. We have uh, a couple of partners that can give us access into a lot of different markets. Um, so I think it's kind of building out that reach and then building up the volume from there. Stefan, thank you very much for being with us on Fintech Insider. Thank you. So thank you to listening to the first ever Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much to Stefan and the Brightmans, of course. If you're still listening, please do go and leave us a review, subscribe to our podcast, tell your friends about it. And if there's anybody you want to hear on the show, drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.co.uk. See you next week.